This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more audiobooks and other content, please visit reconstructionistradio.com. Book title: Church Shift. Author: Sunday Adelijah. Published by Charisma House. Copyright: 2008. Narrated by Jason Garwood. Chapter 2: The Kingdom-Minded Church. The decision to stand up to our government was not our first effort to reach our nation for God, but it was the most dramatic to date, and it became a watershed moment for us and for the entire nation of Ukraine. We had very good reason to believe our lives were in danger. The last time any group had gone to the streets in such massive protest was a few years before, and people had been shot. So we proceeded very carefully. We requested permission from the city to gather. The city denied us permission. We tried every angle we could to conform to the law, but we were stonewalled. Opposition from within the church also increased. Many people wrote letters of resignation. Others loudly opposed our plans. They wanted to remain at the level of safety and influence we'd always had. But God had spoken. If we did not move forward down this difficult avenue, the kingdom would stop advancing through us. We could not let that happen. On Monday, November 13, 2003, 3,000 members of our church took the bravest step of our lives and marched on City Hall. We took buses to the city center and walked a kilometer to City Hall. As we flooded the streets, traffic stopped. Commerce all but halted. Nothing could move. There was an unexpected surprise. The Prime Minister of Turkey was visiting that day, and the country's capital was paralyzed by a church group. We were rejoicing, blessing everyone in sight, carrying big banners, celebrating and singing praises. The government was embarrassed to have this incident during a state visit and wanted to avoid national disgrace. We arrived at City Hall and held an outdoor meeting. We prayed for the government, then spoke to the leaders through a megaphone. We elected you. You are supposed to serve us, so we are blessing you, praying for you. Don't be against your own people. I appealed to them to extend the lease on our land or provide us land to build on, but the city hall building remained quiet. Nobody came out. In an atmosphere of growing tension, we wondered what their response would be. Does God really care about nations? Many people in today's church have a hard time believing that God cares about nations and societies. They think he is solely concerned with individuals or with his chosen people. But the Bible is very clear. God wants to redeem nations. His redemptive work on the cross is for nations as well as individuals. That's why he said to go preach the gospel to all nations and to disciple nations. God eagerly awaits the redemption of the nations. Throughout the Bible, God's nation focus is clear. In a significant passage in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God uses interesting language to describe the nation of Israel. He calls it, quote, my son, my firstborn, end quote. It is instructive that God uses a first-person description for a nation. Normally, son refers to an individual. In Malachi 3, verse 17, God did it again, speaking through the prophet that he would spare Israel, quote, as a man spares his own son who serves him, end quote. I believe God is teaching us about his attitude towards nations. In his eyes, nations are not just some abstract entity. 
nations are as tangible and precious to him as individuals. If God saved the nation of Israel, his firstborn, logically he wants to do the same for all other nations, which are his children. Israel was the beginning of a global campaign. God wants preeminence in all things in every nation. Jesus promised in Matthew 24, verse 14, quote, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come, end quote. He wants to adopt as sons all nations, not just individuals. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, he gave, quote, All authority in heaven and on earth to the disciples to be used to disciple nations, not just individuals. There will be no end to the increase of his government, says Isaiah 9, verse 7. Have you ever wondered why God has such great respect for man's governments? Why does he teach us to obey and respect them and submit to their authority? If God is only concerned with saving individuals, why doesn't he tell us to simply ignore man's systems of rule? The reason is that government is God's idea. He has a government of his own, and he wants men to rule justly on the earth in their own governments. God created governments as systems of justice for himself. He wants to administer the earth with justice through kingdom-minded leaders. Even if the government is being administered badly, it is still a God-ordained institution. That's why Paul said in Romans that every government is from God. As kingdom people, we are not allowed to ignore governments because they are established by God and are part of his plan for this earth. Our purpose is to make those governments act justly and according to all kingdom principles. Church reformers like Martin Luther in previous ages had this national focus. They wanted to bring nations to their knees before God. But today, too many Christians have scaled back their ambitions. It's time to be ambitious again. It's time to shift our churches. Until the children of the Almighty God act like His representatives on the earth, nothing will change in our countries. It does not matter how big our churches get, or how wealthy they become, or how beautiful we build them. The destiny of your land is in the hands of the church and her willingness to declare the position of God in the society. Not of this world. Some people object to this teaching and quote John 18, verse 36, where Jesus said, quote, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place, end quote. Christians have been using this phrase out of context for decades to forfeit this realm to Satan and neglect their calling to the nations. If his kingdom is not of this world, then we have no real assignment here except for evangelism and individual personal development. The hard work of restoring nations to the kingdom doesn't matter. These people turn Jesus' meaning on its head and twist his kingdom message into an anti-kingdom message. Let's consider this passage in context. Pilate was quizzing Jesus about the source of Jesus' authority. He asked him, quote, Are you the king of the Jews? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me, end quote. John 18, 33 and 35. In response, Jesus said that his authority and assignment came from heaven, not from earth. The Jews could not make him a king. God the Father already had. Because men did not give Jesus his authority, they could not take it away from him. He was operating with orders from a superior kingdom. That's why he said, quote, My kingdom is not of this world. End quote. Does this mean he did not care about the earth? Of course not. The opposite is true. He came to earth to bring the kingdom of God back to it. 
He cared about the world enough that he left a superior place and brought the superior principles of that place to a corrupted sphere. He wasn't saying he didn't care about the world, but that the world's kingdoms are not the source of his authority. Jesus' kingdom has everything to do with the earth and humanity, but it does not derive from them. Quote, the one who comes from above is above all, end quote, Jesus said in John 3.31. He operates from above, so should we. As followers of Jesus, our kingdom is not of this world, but that kingdom should rule this world here and now. Jesus specifically prayed that we would not be removed from the world, John 17. Jesus also said to occupy until he returns, Luke 19.13. Mark chapter 1 verse 15 and Luke chapter 11 verse 20 say the kingdom is at hand. It's here. It's now. It's what our lives are supposed to be about. And Daniel chapter 2 verse 44 says his kingdom will crush all others. The real focus of every Christian's life and of all our church activities is promoting the kingdom of God in every sphere of our nations. This was humanity's first mission, and it remains our primary mission, our unchanging mission. Our kingdom mandate predates the birth of Christ by thousands of years. God created this earth for mankind to rule. God said, quote, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. End quote. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God gave us this corner of the universe to reign, just as he is reigning over the universe. Adam was created in the image and after the likeness of God to rule the earth. He fellowshiped and communed with God. He dressed and kept the Garden of Eden. The glory of the kingdom was present in the Garden of Eden, and men were to multiply it. But when mankind sinned, we lost the glory of the kingdom. Catastrophe came to every sphere of life. But God had a plan in place to restore the kingdom to earth as originally planned. Isaiah and Habakkuk prophesied that the glory of God would cover the earth again. Isaiah 40 verse 5, Habakkuk 2 verse 14. That possibility returned to us with the arrival of Jesus, whose primary assignment was to restore the kingdom by restoring man's original purpose to us. The kingdom solves all problems. That's why John the Baptist said it was good news, Luke 3.18. The thing that was lost was coming back. Through the second Adam, Jesus, God's original plan is being carried out to have an earthly sphere entirely ruled by kingdom principles. Think of it this way. When God created Adam, he put all nations in one person. All people who have ever lived came from Adam. You and I were in Adam. We share his DNA. His sin became our sin through inheritance, Romans 5. God created a seed of a second Adam so all of us could become righteous through him. In Jesus, God the Father put the ability to restore all nations. Jesus carried the redeemed nations in him, spiritually speaking. That's why he could die for all nations, not just the Jews. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, Romans 5 verse 12. God offered as a sacrifice his son, Jesus Christ, in order to redeem the power and the authority from Satan and return dominion over the earth to man. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace 
and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Romans chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. God now expects us to move in the authority and power that Adam was originally given. We don't need to keep on looking at ourselves as if we are still not redeemed. No, we are back in Eden. Jesus said, quote, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, end quote. Matthew 28, 18. Everyone who comes to Jesus and repents of his sins acquires the holiness, righteousness, power, and authority of Jesus Christ. He has transferred to us, his disciples, this power that he won back. That's why God calls us earthly kings and priests, because we are called to deliver this planet from evil. Revelation 5.10 God will not supernaturally spread the kingdom because that would rob man of his purpose. Spreading the kingdom is our job. The redemption of our friends, family, communities, and countrymen literally depends on the actions of the church. If the church doesn't start fighting corruption, it will keep flourishing in the country. If the church doesn't object to immorality, society will keep sliding more and more toward lawlessness. God wants the church to become the standard bearer of order and righteousness in every country. As the Apostle Peter wrote, quote, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. End quote. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation has made it possible for us to rule as Adam did. Big Ambitions That's a big ambition. And any church that is focused on winning its nation to God has big ambitions indeed. But a church that is not focused on discipling nations exchanges big ambitions for small ones without even realizing it. Many churches think they are stretching themselves by building a new sanctuary or youth wing or buying a church bus. But God's ambitions are vastly bigger. He is sending Christians to impact entire societies. The promise of God is that we can ask him to give us the nations, not just a bigger church building. Sometimes my minister friends in America tell me how God is blessing them by increasing attendance at their church and granting them all sorts of earthly blessings. They tell me they're believing in faith for a thousand more members, a new car, a television show, and so on. I say, if you want to use your faith to get a new car or more church members, fine, but I'm using my faith to subdue and change a nation. There is nothing wrong with houses and earthly blessings, but those things are just tools. Some Christians become satisfied with the tools, but the real reward is nations. God wants to make many of us greater than we ever thought we would be. Our ambitions need to match the size and scope of Christ's ambitions in coming to earth. Did the only begotten Son of God humble himself and come here to be violently and brutally murdered, hung on a cross, despised and mocked, then come back from the dead and preach and teach for 40 days just so we could be prosperous and have emotion-stirring praise and worship times and pass out colorful leaflets and set up clever websites, all while people around us are depressed and committing suicide, spreading AIDS, dying of hunger, wrecking the planet, and much more? I think not. I want to challenge you to lift your faith from small satisfactions. 
God will do more than pay your bills. That's what the Gentiles think about. God doesn't even call that a reward. Those things come automatically with salvation. Our ambition must be much bigger. We are part of the body of Christ whose members are called to restore the kingdom of God to earth. The reward for seeking God is influence over a sphere of society so people can be rescued from the horrors of sin and evil. Anybody who walks in obedience to God has the right to ask for nations to be restored and given into his hands, and that very much includes you. The time has come for us to remember the cross and the big ambitions Christ has for this planet. It is time to shift our thinking from hiding in church to ruling our promised lands for the glory of God. It's time for Christians to come into their inheritance, to discover their promised land. It's time to act, knock, and seek results. The time has come for the kingdom of God to be manifested so that the nations will follow God. It is time to stop thinking of ourselves as occupying the bottom step of the social ladder. It is time to stop lying low. It is time to stop seeking redemption from influential people like politicians or tycoons. It is time to see ourselves as instruments in the hand of God. We are neither small nor insignificant, but God's messengers. He sees in you the destiny of your family, your friends, your co-workers, and your nation. For a long time, the church has taken care of itself only, but the time has come to take responsibility for every sphere of society from our circle of friends to our families, from our workplace to our city councils and schools, from sports and the arts to politics and business. Today, the church needs to bring peoples and nations out of the desert where they have been wandering. The kingdom of God is God's total answer to man's total problem. It is synonymous with God's will and ways. When he says, your kingdom come, Luke 11:2, it means through you and me. We are to walk in power. Every gift and talent we have is to be exercised in service of the kingdom. Believers need to start social organizations and charities that will become strong social movements that captivate people's attention. We need to find effective ways to serve the homeless, the troubled, the orphan, the beaten, the addicted, the criminal, and the helpless. God is waiting for us to take action. We don't have the moral right to be indifferent. God doesn't want a passive church. One day our own nations will be judged. God will send some nations to hell, as it says in Psalm 91, verse 17, quote, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God, end quote. Let us work with all the skill and passion we have so that our nations will be saved. As our church waited in the city square for the government's response to our protest, I could feel that change was coming to our country. We had cracked the ice. The deep freeze that had encased millions of souls for generations was beginning to thaw. Finally, the mayor of Kiev came out of the building to address us personally. This was a wonderful surprise. He spoke through the megaphone and said the city would provide several hectares of land for us to build on. They would give us the land for free, a $5 million value. In return, we promised to clear people from the streets so normal life could resume in Kiev. We had won a great victory, but we would soon discover that in a country like ours, victories like this could be short-lived. There was even greater turmoil to come than we had ever dreamed. 
and God was about to put us on the vanguard of a much bigger movement than we had bargained for. Kingdom Principles from Chapter 2 Number 1. God eagerly awaits the redemption of the nations. Number 2. God wants preeminence in all things in every nation. Number 3. Until the children of the Almighty God act like His representatives on the earth, nothing will change in our countries. The destiny of our countries is in the hands of the church and her willingness to declare the position of God in the society. Number 4. The real focus of every Christian's life and of all our church activities is promoting the kingdom of God in every sphere of our nations. Number 5. If the church doesn't start fighting corruption, it will keep flourishing in the country. Number 6. A church that is not focused on discipling nations exchanges its big ambitions for small ones without even realizing it. Number 7. If you want to use your faith to get a new car or more church members, fine. But I'm using my faith to subdue and change a nation. Chapter 3. Finding Your Promised Land The first thing people want to know when they begin to think in terms of changing society, culture, and whole nations is, how do I get started? What is my part? You have a specific promised land, the place where you are to exercise kingdom influence. I want to help you find your promised land and get started bringing the kingdom to the people and institutions around you. Discovering your promised land is of primary importance. It is the gateway into kingdom effectiveness. In fact, I believe you will only be truly effective for God when you are working in your promised land. Many Christians in a variety of jobs and circumstances try to engage in individual evangelism whenever they can, but evangelism is only truly effective when you are operating in your area of gifting. A fish can't swim on the sidewalk. It has no grace there. A person operating outside of his or her promised land is similarly clumsy. When you try to evangelize outside your calling, it's unnatural. Non-believers don't like being imposed upon, and truthfully, no Christian likes imposing himself on others. It's miserable for everyone involved. But when you operate in your promised land, you are able to show God-given skill and provide kingdom answers, and people receive you with open arms. You gain standing with others. Their hearts become receptive to receive more from you. That is why, to be an effective sharer of the gospel, you must find your habitat, your promised land, where you are naturally graceful and fruitful. There you will use your gift effectively. When I first arrived in Kiev, Ukraine, I would ride around all day on a city bus weeping. I had no natural reason to be crying, but deep inside I felt both love and pain for this city, which would become intertwined with my kingdom destiny. I would sit in the bus crying out with my soul, God, let this city bow before you. At times I would go to the tallest building in town, stand on the roof, and look across the cityscape. God, let your spirit come, I would pray. In Ukraine, I had found my promised land. This was where God wanted to plant me and where I would have influence for his kingdom's sake. Everything that God created has a particular function and a specific purpose, and that includes you. God gave you life and talents for a reason. You may not know what your purpose is, but that doesn't mean you don't have one. 
It just means you haven't found it yet. Each of us has the potential to become great. At one time in my life, I thought I was good for nothing and nothing would come of me. A lot of people think of themselves in the same way. But that is a lie of the devil. We are all good for something, and God has set aside tasks for us to do. If we don't do them, they may never get done. How do you find your promised land? Here are several signposts to help you get there. Find your promised land where love and pain intersect. Your promised land is where your love and pain intersect. When I rode the bus around Kiev, I felt great love and pain for all I saw. My heart was inflamed and bound up in the city's future. Your concern and your pain can point the way to your promised land. When you feel pain and love for a particular problem or need in society or for a particular place or people, this may be pointing you to your destiny. For example, some people look at their government and love it, but they feel pain at what the politicians are doing to the direction of their country. They want to bring righteousness to it. Moses felt the same way. He loved his people and hated what the Egyptians were doing, so he killed a man. See Exodus chapter 2. That murder was a work of the flesh, but it sprang from right motivation. His pain and love met in his concern for the Israelites. Your promised land is where your passion lies. It is where your heart quickens, where you feel an almost supernatural hunger to intervene and improve a situation. Ask yourself these key questions that will help you to discover your promised land. Number one, what do you love and enjoy doing? Sometimes what we call a hobby is really our calling. Number two, what do you have a passion for? What sets you on fire and consumes you with zeal? Number three, what makes you angry and frustrated? What problems can you not get out of your head? You may be called to confront those problems with your talents and time. Nobody can tell you for certain where your promised land is. As a pastor, I know firsthand that the diversity of gifts in the kingdom of God is much greater than any one person can understand or direct. No leader or pastor, friend or prophet can tell you for certain where your promised land is because no person can see everything God wants to do in society. It's not up to one person to set the agenda. That is the Holy Spirit's job. The leader's job is to empower people with kingdom principles and release them in confidence and strength. Often people come up to me and share their burden or passion for an area of need that I did not know existed. For example, I did not know that sexual molestation was a problem until someone told me they wanted to minister to victims of molestation. Things I would never imagine are on the heart of God and need to be addressed. That is why he awakens the passion in each of us. If a leader tried to orchestrate kingdom activity, he would die trying and would never accomplish it anyway. Finding your promised land is ultimately up to you and God. Your gifts were made for others. Your promised land will always involve meeting other people's needs. You might be a gifted leader or speaker, artist or mechanic, teacher or nurse. Each of these can become an incredibly fruitful area to bring the kingdom of God's influence. But by definition, your talents can only be useful when they bless others. Keep that focus in whatever you do. Your promised land is not about building you up or making you comfortable. It's about making you useful to others.
your ministry is not limited to the pulpit. It's a shame that some churches still teach that true ministry is limited to the pulpit. That's rubbish. Pulpit ministries are to help people discover and be effective in their own spheres of influence. But the vast majority of people are meant to serve outside the pulpit and the fivefold ministries. The engineers who attend my church are disguised as evangelists, if you want to think of it that way. The politicians who attend my church are disguised apostles. The lawyers are disguised teachers. When you can find true ministry to the fivefold ministries, you make 95% of the church irrelevant. Furthermore, your promised land is almost certainly not a ministry you feel you should start, but an actual place of influence in society that you can take back by the grace of God. Many Christians have become so religious that they are no longer passionate about what happens in the world. Because they have been locked up in the four walls of the church, their wildest desire is to become a preacher, evangelist, praise and worship leader, youth pastor, and so on. These are housekeeping ministries that need to be done excellently, but they should not be confused with the real work God has called the vast majority of believers to, which is in the world. Don't confuse the chore you perform in God's house for the promised land he gives you outside his house. Break out of the mindset that God only works through church leaders or church positions. Your ministry most likely takes place out in the world. Your gift requires growth. The Old Testament account of the Israelites leaving Egypt is an illustration for us. When we get saved and begin connecting to our kingdom purpose, we must go through a growth process. You will not take your promised land suddenly and all at once. God told the Israelites, quote, The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once, or the wild animals will multiply around you. End quote. Deuteronomy 7.22 It will take a while to fully take over the peace of the promised land you are meant to subdue through the talents God gave you. Expect it to take time and expect to grow along the way. Destruction and boredom are signs you are missing your promised land. Ignorance of your promised land is dangerous because it leads to ruin and destruction. But knowledge gives freedom. That's why Jesus said, quote, Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. End quote. John 8, 32. The truth on its own cannot make you free. Only knowledge of the truth can set you free. Misuse is the same as destruction. The Bible says, quote, My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. End quote. Hosea 4, verse 6. Ignorance and lack of knowledge can be the cause of a Christian's ruin. I have taught our people for years that they are not just waiting to go to heaven, but that God has called them for a purpose. As a result, everyone in our church knows their purpose in life. They are either thriving in that purpose or are training to be effective in it. Finding your promised land will do more than anything else to quell self-destructive tendencies and boredom. If you are obedient to God and do what he has created you to do, then your task will fill up your life. You won't have time to be self-destructive or bored. Sometimes what you train for isn't your calling. My calling is to be a minister, but for a while I wanted to become a journalist. I studied for six years in the university and received two degrees in journalism. But my kingdom calling was not to be a journalist. 
Had I followed that course and become a journalist, I would have never been so fulfilled, accomplished, and happy as I am now. I was trained in one area, but my promised land was in a different area altogether. Sometimes your calling lies outside your training. God will use circumstances to train you, but be ready to go in new directions as God leads you. Do not resist a change in direction. If a man is called to be a doctor, but he insists on being a businessman, he will be miserable and of little use to God. If a woman is called to be a business leader, but is working as a teacher, she will not be totally fulfilled. They will be like the fig tree that bears no fruit. Quote, seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never be fruitful again. Immediately the tree withered, end quote. Matthew 21, 19. Be faithful with little. Because we take over our promised lands gradually, we must show ourselves faithful at each step. Before the next stage in your calling opens up to you, you will have to go through times of waiting and preparation. During these times, you learn to be faithful in what is least. So your place of calling becomes your place of manifesting Christ as a servant. Quote, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. End quote. Luke chapter 16, verse 10. This may also include a season of serving in another person's promised land. If you have not found your own promised land, or if you are still in training, don't stand idly by, but help others find their promised lands. Our goal in subduing our own promised land is not about self-fulfillment or self-advancement. Rather, we have a common cause with other kingdom-minded believers, and we must help each other as much as our time and training will allow. Nobody can excuse themselves from labor simply because they do not know where their promised land is. Let us help one another. Ours is a common goal, not a one-man show. Help your co-laborers just as you wish to be helped by them to be effective in your promised land. Hear from God. The other major key to finding your promised land is to look beyond the natural. Go to God and ask Him for what purpose He created you. God is your maker, and He's the only one who fully knows your purpose and calling in life. To proceed without His direct input is foolish. How does God speak to us? He has given us His Word as a plumb line for each one of us. But when God wants to give you personal guidance concerning a specific matter, He will make certain parts of His Word come alive and become a source of revelation for you. God can lead you through your whole life by means of His Word, by speaking to you in dreams and through sermons, by warning you through prophecies or advising you through other people or through books you read. God has many different ways of communicating with us, the secret of Jesus' successful life and ministry was that he frequently communed with God and always followed his advice. Quote, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. End quote. John 8, 28 and 29. Take note of that. What did Jesus do? Only those things that he learned from his Father. Reach out in prayer to get an understanding of God's plan, of His revelation and vision for your life. Expect God to speak to you. Ask Him specific questions. Thank Him for the answers in advance. Sometimes His answer comes while you are reading the Bible. Sometimes it can be an inward witness, a joy, or a heaviness in your heart. Or sometimes He speaks to us through our circumstances. 
God has many ways of getting information into a man's heart and mind so he can develop a right understanding of a situation. Always remember, do only what you have seen with your spiritual eyes. If you learn to live in this way, you will rarely stumble. Jesus said, quote, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. End quote. John chapter 5, verse 30. Get educated. Once you have found your promised land, go and fully explore it. In the Bible, Moses sent spies to search out the promised land for the people of Israel. They spent 40 days there studying the terrain, investigating the people and crops. This is a model for us to follow. The best way to explore your promised land is through education. For a long time, many Christians thought they could get away with reading the Bible only and not bothering with an education. That is why Christians have lost their edge to the ungodly in almost every sphere of life. People who have cultivated professionalism, service, and excellence have taken over, even if they do not belong to the kingdom of God. We have acted like fools, thinking that the anointing of God would carry us through. The Bible says, quote, Every prudent man acts out of knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. End quote. Proverbs 13, 16. Quote, Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. End quote. Proverbs 3, verse 13. We must maximize our abilities by educating ourselves. Each of us needs a program of self-education. Research your area of gifting, read about it, exhaust the literature and teaching materials. Make yourself a lifelong learner so you can be a sharp arrow in God's hands. As it says, quote, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. End quote. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 2. Every Christian is called to be a polished shaft in God's quiver. You are his weapon. The sharp end of an arrow symbolizes its focus on the target and its excellence in penetrating problems. Through education, you become a powerful weapon in the hands of God. But self-education alone is not enough. An indispensable way to sharpen yourself is by going to the best schools and becoming a recognized specialist and professional in your area of endeavor. Universities have several advantages over self-education. They teach you to have discipline to study, research, and meet deadlines. They broaden your knowledge and bring you into contact with people of diverse experiences. And a university gives you a diploma that people will recognize. This gives you credibility in the eyes of men. If you try to take your promised land without getting an education, you are doomed to failure. On the other hand, diligent training and education in your field of specialization secure your success. Apply maximum effort because you are working not just for yourself, but to transform a nation by shifting from where you are. Do all you can to acquire knowledge. Knowledge is one of God's primary ways of dispelling darkness, evil, and ignorance. Knowledge guarantees eventual success. It focuses your efforts. Keep striving to perfect yourself in your field and press on to learn as much as you can. A Kingdom Education As a Christian, you have an additional advantage and responsibility when taking your promised land. Knowledge alone will not exalt a nation. Knowledge must lead to righteousness. 
Like Daniel in the Bible, you must combine professional knowledge with knowledge of kingdom principles like integrity, holiness, love, and compassion. Because you have the mind of Christ, you are called to pair your natural learning with spiritual knowledge and wisdom. You can see all aspects of a problem, not just the earthly aspect. As you study, you will see the gaps in what secular sources are teaching you because you have higher truth. That enables you to generate an even better approach to problems in your area of expertise. For example, at the university where I studied, I learned in my sociology class that society could be divided into spheres, government, sports, the arts, business, and so on. That thought became the foundation for how our church now takes the principles of the kingdom of God to society. We focus on those specific areas, just as I learned in school. Another thing I learned when studying modern civilization is that the reforms brought about by Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation form the basis of today's society. Protestant values are what people in the West live by, and that is why the West has had so much success in creating peaceful, wealthy societies. Historians and scientists all agree that the teaching of the Protestant preachers were directly responsible for today's civilization. For example, a desire to spread the gospel led to the invention of the printing press. The same values led to the invention of the modern-day banking and credit systems, time and clocks, democratic systems of government, modern industrial systems, the rule of law, equal and balanced systems of wealth distribution, and the Protestant work ethic. The Protestants are also responsible for the tradition of debt settlement, marriage as the institution of one man and one woman, obeying parents, weekends, and church attendance on Sundays. Even if some of these things were practiced before, the Protestants elevated them to a level of worldwide influence. By seeing how biblical principles led to stability, health, and wealth in the past, I get fresh ideas about how to change societies today. I combine kingdom purposes with my knowledge of history. At the university, I also began to discern that nations do not become great by virtue of their wealth, but by the wealth of their virtues. For example, Switzerland has few natural resources compared to most countries in Africa. But it is a much healthier, wealthier, and more just and stable country than any country in Africa. Switzerland's wealth is in its moral fabric and the value system of her people. See Isaiah chapter 59. She has made much more of her comparatively meager resources than any African country has made with its great natural wealth. Even reading about the Bolshevik Revolution gave me ideas and inspiration. That revolution led to much evil, but I saw how one man, Lenin, was able to change the history of a whole country. I am one man. I can change a whole country too. And so can you by combining your education with kingdom wisdom and knowledge. For many years, our church has encouraged people to get educated and obtain degrees. The Embassy of God even has educational programs such as the Center for Business Transformation, the Institute of Personality Development, the Institute for Transformation of Society, a linguistic center, and more. We want even the structure of our church programs to point people outside and to encourage them to get further education. That's what it will take to fully impact Ukraine for Christ. 
Today, members of our church work in all spheres of the society, taking an active position for the kingdom and excelling in their work. We have many people of all ages who are now students at various universities. Many are members of social organizations that actively influence the social issues in the country. Many are active in business. Just a few years ago, some of these people were unemployed, but now they are citizen leaders of the country. They are people of honor and influence. This didn't happen by a miracle. It happened by finding their promised lands and exploring them fully. Education is a never-ending process. On the spiritual side, you must continually study the Bible and other Christian books and sermons. In your area of giftedness, you must keep up with the advancing knowledge or you risk losing your influence and becoming a dull arrow. Even if you already hold a position of authority, stay ahead of the rest by constantly searching out and studying the new developments. Remember, misuse, ruin, and destruction are inevitable where there is no knowledge. Knowledge, understanding, and wisdom enable kings to reign effectively. Jesus studied his father constantly, and he told his disciples, quote, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does, end quote. John chapter 5, verse 19. Education and wisdom were the secrets to Jesus' dominion. He acquired wisdom from observing the Father and acting likewise. It is the same for you and me. Nobody can go further than their knowledge. Seek knowledge and understanding and all obstacles will be removed from your way. Every situation will bow its knees before the revelation of God. Seeking Egypt's Help But don't mistake getting knowledge with adopting the world's ways. When your life goal is to build a big church or ministry, it's possible to be wrapped up in it so much that you begin to play the world's games. The Bible warns against this. Quote, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against the house of the wicked, against those who help evildoers. But the Egyptians are men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, he who helps will stumble. He who is helped will fall. Both will perish together. End quote. Isaiah chapter 31 verses 1 through 3. Egypt is symbolic of the world, and God is warning us not to strengthen ourselves in the world's ways or put ourselves under the world's yoke. There is a big difference between seeking the world's knowledge and taking on the world's character. It is worthless and senseless to seek spiritual help in Egypt. Help comes from the Lord who created heaven and earth. If God sends us to Egypt, it is to learn certain principles, not to be conformed to its character. The Prison of the Pew Since I started preaching this message of church shift around the world, church members often tell me they feel trapped in the pews of their churches. One husband and wife wrote this to me, quote, We have served on the staff of churches, but as regular church members now, we have been frustrated at the lack of ministry opportunity. We see that others share the same sense of discouragement. 
These are people who love the Lord and have a burning passion for ministry in their hearts, but for the most part go unrecognized, unempowered, and often misunderstood by church leadership. Many people desperately want their relationship with God, leadership skills, talents, and life experience to count for the kingdom. But their experience has been that few pastors and leaders know how to embrace and empower them to become ministers outside the four walls of the church. So, people leave their abilities and skills outside the door while they worship and fellowship with other believers. When they leave, they again pick up their leadership roles. This has created a trend now where gifted people leave the organized church and unite in home group settings. Those with a more defined and focused ministry, vision, form parachurch ministries rather than defending their already proven leadership abilities before a church board. These people are often labeled rebellious renegades. Though their ministries may be flourishing, they are flourishing right outside the walls of their home church. If people adhere to the basic tenets of faith and have servants' hearts, there should be nothing that stops ministry from flowing freely from every believer throughout the body of Christ as long as the church's ministry structure and chain authority is respected and understood by all. It has long been our desire to see all the resources God has placed within the hearts and lives of believers turned loose on an unsuspecting world. Let us not become permission-withholding Pharisees who stifle the gifts, skills, and talents of the very people God sent to help us. Let us become compassionate, permission-granting spiritual leaders. Ironically, professionals in politics, entertainment, sports, and other spheres of society have taken their company's message worldwide in a way the church has not been able to for 2,000 years. Globally, Mickey Mouse is a more recognized name than Jesus Christ. In many places, the shape of the Coca-Cola bottle is more recognized than the cross. The debut of Apple's iPhone swept the world in a single day. Yet, when professionals from those industries come to our churches, we typically ask them to give their tithes and perhaps do some housekeeping services, such as serving on the board or teaching a class. How much more quickly could we finish the Great Commission if we tapped into the vast resource of people who sit like prisoners in our pews? Pastors need to train and teach their members to stop being pew warmers and to become a people called out of the world's lifestyle to subdue every sphere of their lives to God and the kingdom principles. This is such a crucial matter that we will spend the next chapter discussing how to become kingdom-minded. Kingdom principles from chapter 3. Number 1. Your promised land will always involve meeting other people's needs. Number 2. When you confine true ministry to the five-fold ministries, you make 95% of the church irrelevant. Number 3. Don't confuse the chore you perform in God's house with the promised land he gives you outside his house. Number 4. Your place of calling becomes your place of manifesting Christ as a servant. Number five, the best way to explore your promised land is through education. Number six, knowledge must lead to righteousness. Number seven, nobody can go further than their knowledge.